surprised when I look over and the musicians seem all jumbled up which instruments they're playing and they keep changing and it's amazing. They are so gifted and skilled in such a variety of things. We are um, finishing up the Beatitudes. We're going to do one more uh, Sunday after this with just the salt and light next week. But we're finishing up the last two of the Beatitudes uh, this week, the peacemakers and the persecuted. But as I've been doing the last number of weeks, I'm going to read the whole thing because they all, they all work together to provide a, a complete picture of, of one person, of the person who's blessed to be in the kingdom of heaven. So listen to the word of God from Matthew chapter 5, the beginning 12 verses. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. Guide us as we, as we seek to be changed by it. Uh, guide my words, guide all of our hearts and minds as we, we seek for you to work in us through your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've been talking about who we are. Broken, mourning, meek. Those who are hungering and thirsting to be right, to be right with God. And, and all of that, we fundamentally know our need. And then, and then God responds and he works in us and he, and he works his transformation to make us people of mercy and, and, and people with pure hearts. But only now do we move from who we are to what we do. It moves from describing our relationships in our, in our inner life to describing what we do, our activity and our action. This is what we live for. This is our purpose and our calling. We are peacemakers. 
Now, before we step into what this means to be peacemakers, I have to note that there are many other offers of things to live for, to purposes to, to, to take on, uh, things that we should be doing in our world. And, and, and there's all kinds of religions, and I don't just mean traditional 501c3 religious organizations. I, I mean religions of money and, and status and power and beauty. And, or, or there are religions that pursue promises of life renewal or mental energy or anything else that you might see on, on billboards or in advertisements making any sort of promises. Jesus, Jesus never made those kinds of promises. That's not what he offered even when, when they can be things that come from following Jesus, people have found their lives getting better, and they have found their mental health getting better. They have had relationships healed, and, and they've had their energy raised. And many other things in life can get better when we follow Jesus, but that's not the promise of his, and it doesn't always happen. He doesn't say to anyone, come, and I will relieve your inner tension. That's not the reason for coming to Christ. Our purpose or our purpose in following him. We don't come to him because he's relevant. Although he always is. We don't come become Christians because it feels good. Though often it does. And we don't have come to have all our problems solved though sometimes it's, it solves some of them, including our biggest problem that we don't always recognize, sin and death. We come to Christ because it is true. It is true because what he says and what is said about him in Scripture is true. Is he the king? Is he savior? Is he creator and God? If, he, if that is true, then what he says is true. And we are to first seek his kingdom and his righteousness. I, I encourage you to read further into the Sermon on the Mount. We're not going to go there in the sermon series this time, but you'll find the seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then, and then, all these things are added unto you. But your purpose, your purpose will be peace in him. That's what you'll be living for and with. Nothing else. So we have to ask ourselves, what does that mean? Three questions. What, what is peace? What is peacemaking? And then why does peacemaking bring persecution? That's, that's where Jesus goes, and it helps clarify what it means to be a peacemaker when peacemakers don't necessarily lead to peace, but rather even to persecution. So, but let's start at the beginning. What is peace? What is this peace that we're talking about? Well, usually we think of peace, we think of it in two ways. We either think of peace as the opposite of anxiety, or we think of peace as the opposite of hostility. But the, 
the, the free from anxiety piece is not necessarily the piece that we're talking about in this context. In other places in Scripture, God absolutely is. It's contentment, um, everything, that is true. But in this context, he's talking about the end of a hostility, the end of, the end of enmity, the end of war. In this case, in this context, we're, we're talking first and primarily about peace with God. The rest of peace comes with and after peace with God. And we'll get to that. But for now, we're talking about peace with God. Romans 5 says that when we're saved, we have peace with God. Which also means before we experience or embraced Christ's salvation, we're at odds with God. We're in a hostile relationship. There's, there's conflict between us and God. Romans 8, 7 says it explicitly. Our natural state is to be at war with God. We're all fighting against him. And we see it most clearly when he shows up in the flesh and we kill him. At just that moment when he becomes most vulnerable to us, we destroyed him sought to now my natural reaction is to say well hold on a minute I, I i think that my first reaction when i hear someone say that i'm at war with god in my natural state that i hate him and want to destroy him i'm a peace-loving person and i don't even like conflict i don't know many who do but i do know some who do but not me I have nothing against anyone, much less God. And even if he has something against me, I don't, I don't think I have anything against him. But let me make it clear. I think this is, this is my belief, and I believe the Bible is right when it says that we are all angry at God, hostile to God, and at war with him. But, but here's the thing. As long as we can't see or acknowledge or anger and hostility inside of us it does a number on us as long as we don't recognize that we have anger inside of us we can't or we won't deal with it we won't see the brokenness of our relationship and look for reconciliation and and any unrecognized and unresolved anger it distorts us and, and when it's with God, when that unrecognized hostility with God is not seen, it keeps us from what is most important. And we have to make, we have to make our hostility with God conscious in order to find peace. Jonathan Edwards, the great American philosopher and theologian and thinker and pastor, wrote an important article named Men Naturally God's Enemies. And, and he described three places where we see this enmity with God in our mind, in our will, and in our emotions. Edwards, Edwards points out that if you look closely at your thoughts, you're going to find your own hostility with God. Remember the first time you read the, through the Bible and saw all those things that God did that just didn't seem right smiting Uzzah for trying to catch the Ark of the Covenant when it was falling off the wagon. 
or, or telling the Israelites that they're to wipe out some towns and people when they conquer them. And, and even Jesus, he's always talking about hell and, and demanding so much, setting such a high bar for us to follow him, especially in this Sermon on the Mount. In our minds, we just don't agree with God, with what he's asking of us, what, asking of me. And all this reflects our intellectual hostility towards God's claim of authority over us. That He is God. In our will, in our will, we're so ready to make deals with God and, and this just and then just as easily to, to forget Him. Uh, we, we'll tell God that we'll do something and then we simply let it go. And, and in, in many ways, it's easier to break that deal with him than breaking a deal with another person whom we're going to have to see tomorrow. Finally, emotionally, have you ever been grateful for something someone did for you and something they gave to you? And we go out of our way to thank them and, and be warm toward them. But, but consider what God has done for us. Everything. How's your gratitude been? Is it commensurate for what he's done? I think of a, a Keith Green song comes to mind when I, when I think of this, and he cries out in the lyrics, my eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you dead to me we have all that we have from God but when you hit a bump in the road even the smallest of things we so easily and quickly forget what we have from God and feel like it's it's not enough and we get disappointed and, and sometimes we can see even our own anger with God now I'm a, I'm a fairly laid-back person. Things, uh, I, take, I tend to take things in stride, and it's taken me a long time in my life, in my own journey, to see my own enmity with God. The places of my frustration and hostility with Him, where I would justify holding on to those places in my life rather than entrusting them to Him. And, and usually those places emerge when things don't go right. That's when I can see into my own heart. And when I can see it, then I can, then we can deal with it. And the peace grows deeper. Keller has a powerful observation that history is in no way man's search for God. He writes, instead, the Bible says history is the record of man's monumental and unrelenting effort to get God off his back. There is no way, the Bible says, history is a story of man's search for God. It is a story of man's effort to get away from God, to get out from under, un, out from under his clammy hands. A famed secular novelist of the postmodern world talks about he, how he, who is an atheist, is haunted by God. He'd like to get God off his back. And, and he is a very honest and sensitive person in his writing. And he could even see 
his own hostility with God while he's trying to deny God even exists. This, frankly, is the story of original sin and the doctrine of human depravity. But when you do see this enmity, when you see it in yourself, when you see it in the history of humanity, then you can also see that the gospel, the good news, is that God has ended this enmity. He did it by sending his son who who took the brunt of all of our anger and all of our hostility toward God to the point of his own death, to the cross, and he forgave us all of it and loved us still and rose from the dead in triumph over the consequences of our sin. And when we see that, when you really see it, it melts the hostility in us away. That's the place where we can get filled with the Spirit, with with the Holy Spirit, that transforms our hostility into worship. A significant part of the process is by, by showing us the hostility that is there in the first place. And, and when you see it and how foolish it is in the light of God's love, it melts away all the more. There's a great story of Naaman in the Old Testament. He's an important, high-ranking, powerful Syrian general who has leprosy. But he's heard about a healing prophet named Elisha. And so he sends word to Elisha to come and help him. But Elisha's response is that Naaman has to come to him to be cleansed. Now, this important and powerful general's first response is anger. Why should I have to go to him? I'm I'm so much more important than he is. And I'm not going to get into that miserable Jordan River and wash. But one of Naaman's sermons, servants comes along to him and points out that his pride is keeping him from getting the healing that he needs. And he gets it. He gets it. And he realizes how foolish he's being, and he goes and gets the healing. Our refusal to recognize our hostility with God is in itself part of that hostility. It may seem beneath us to admit that we have God as an enemy, but it's only in admitting it that we could ever change it, or more exactly, let Him change it in us. But you'll know it changes is changing when you see some things in yourself. When you see worship, coming out of yourself. You know it's changing. When worship comes to you not as a duty, but when worship flows out of your heart with ease and you have a longing to do it. and You'll see it when you're, you're no longer scared of failure. When, when you know His grace, you, you know you have it without having to earn it. Then the pressure is off of any performance of any productivity, of your success and your goodness and your rightness. You are just as loved even when you fail. And this freedom, it changes everything. 
And you're no longer defined or measured or weighed by your performance and no longer afraid to fail. That is a deep sign of being at peace with God. But perhaps the greatest sign, the one that Jesus is looking at here, is of, of having that peace is to be a peacemaker. A peacemaker. So what is a peacemaker, in, in, particularly in this context? For some, peace, being a peacemaker means being a person who just will never make a fuss. Who's, those who are, um, are never going to who are going to avoid conflict at any cost. And, but that's not, clearly not what it means here. That's not what happened with Jesus. He had no problem confronting people, and he ended up in conflicts that cost him his life. And, he, and, and in the next verse, he describes that those who are peacemakers will end up with persecution. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But if peace in this context is peace with God, peacemaking is ushering people into that new relationship of peace with God. Peacemaking is announcing the good news. It's telling people that they are at war with God, but God has offered a treaty, a, a, a way of peace. We call this evangelism, which literally means Good newsing. And, and, and we help people, we help others grow in that peace as well. This also means that peacemakers have a whole different relationship with people. Remember, no fear of failure. You're, you're, not, you're no longer measured by people's responses to you or by performance, by your performance or theirs. Keller says it this way, now you're at peace and you're a peacemaker, which means you look at a person and you don't say, do I like this person? Or what does this person think of me? You say, what is God doing in this person? And how can I help it along? Is God making peace with this person? And and how can I encourage that? When our relationship with God changes, so does our relationship with everyone else. I'm reminded of Eugene Peterson's very singular meaning of what it means to be a minister of the gospel. He he wrote, the pastor's responsibility is to keep the community attentive to God. I've shared that one with you before. To keep the community attentive to God. God's doing things in this body, in each one of us. We help people see and get on board with what God is doing with them and in them and around them and through them. So finally, why does peacemaking always seem to bring persecution? We've seen three signs of peace with God, worship, no fear of failure, and, and peacemaking. This passage, this final beatitude, shows us a fourth, persecution. All Christians have this when they live a life of faith. And let me very quickly say that this passage clarifies that this persecution is for righteousness' sake. There are too many Christians pursuing persecution to be a victim by being obnoxious or fanatical or unpleasant or judgmental or just mean. 
That's not the righteousness or a reflection of the gospel. Rather, it's a performance seeking God's or someone else's affirmation, which is more clearly a sign of distrust. Remember Acts 2, where people are drawn to the church? The church found favor with all people. Jesus is our model here. He attracted and he repelled people. The one thing we don't see is really no reaction at all. If, if people only dislike, dislike you, you're probably being obnoxious. If, if people never dislike you, you're probably being a coward. But when the gospel's in us, the peace of God, and we are being peacemakers, we'll have people respond either way. Think of the workplace. When, you, when you're working hard to not cut corners and, and to truly do the best job possible, some people aren't going to like it. Or when you're a boss and you're both challenging people to try to get the best out of them, the best work out of them, but you also treat them as whole human beings and care for the needs, their needs, you, you, you're probably going to get pushback from both below and above. When we reflect the hope of the gospel in our hearts, in hard situations, it's going to annoy some. When we bring peace where there's hostility, some people are going to hold on to that hostility. But we're going to draw others to that peace. And when you love enemies and you forgive those who have wronged you, some of your friends may be annoyed with you and condemn you. Some are going to be amazed at the grace they see present in you. Now it seems strange that the last beatitude, that the one of the world's response to this new life in you is persecution. It seems strange that this is how all these blessings are going to end. But how it really works is this. Yours is the kingdom of of heaven. Rejoice and be glad when it happens because you'll know it's a sign of your enmity with God falling away. So that's that you'll see that it's the peace of God working in you. I'll tell you honestly it's taken me a long time in my life to see how the hardest relationships in my life those who persecuted me when I was being righteous, not as merely pain, but as a sign of God's working in and through me. I've had my times of being obnoxious as well and deserved it when I got the backlash. But when it was God working through me and people responded with anger, it, it wasn't me they're responding to. It was the peace of God and the Spirit of God in me. And I'm just starting to get how happy that should make me. The result of all this, we are called the children of God who have the kingdom of heaven. We're back to where we started this whole journey in the Beatitudes. The kingdom of heaven and our place in it. This is the resultant relationship we have with God. No longer enemies, but, but neither are we simply servants or slaves. The effect of God's peacemaking is much more significant. Our relationship with Him is much more than just nothing. 
We are His children. Not just worker bees hoping to, to please the king and get a notice. We are His sons and daughters whom He loves, who are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And we welcome in others into this family as other adopted children and let them know they are part of a loving family and, and teach them how to get along. I have a friend who brought home two children as, as adopted children from Sierra Leone in West Africa. And these two children had grown up in an orphanage in the country and they'd grown up as the result of a civil war and devastation with, with nothing, hardly enough food to survive on. And the well from their orphanage was a ways away where they, they would have to get their water. They grew up with nothing. But then they came to this loving home. And the, the whole church family and, and friends were there to greet them when they got off the plane to come home in Buffalo. And, and then they went home with their family, their siblings, their older siblings, and, and both these two children. They walked into the door of this modest American home and they were overwhelmed. And, and both of them were overwhelmed. Isatu, she, she stood, she went to the kitchen sink and she stood at the kitchen sink, she's four or five years old, stood at the kitchen sink and turned it on and off and watched the water flow on and off to see the, the perfectly clean water start and stop in front of her as if it was magic. And then her, her brothers and sisters, they took her and they showed her her room and they began to teach her how to live in this new home, this new kingdom. They were peacemakers to her, bringing her into the family. That's what we do in the family. We are peacemakers. We learned, we're learning it from God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, when he brought us into the family. And now we share that with each other and with others, inviting them into the family and showing each other the ropes. That's what Michael's doing as he goes to Africa. It's what we do here right at home with each other, living with each other, learning from each other, forgiving each other. We learn to be family, and we keep looking to our Lord who gives us peace. And we become peacemakers in the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, it's, it's almost too much to be children of God in the kingdom of heaven. But God, thank you that we have each other. The peacemakers who have told us of you and taught us how to live in this family. The the brothers and sisters whom we can both fight with and then forgive and be forgiven by. And, and Lord, this family, that we can together reach out to a world 
that doesn't know peace with you, doesn't know a family like this. But God, help us to be peacemakers. No matter the cost, even of persecution, but trusting even there when it's truly of you, we are all the more blessed to be called your children and to live in the kingdom of heaven. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name.